Hello, beautiful people. Good morning. Hey, how are we all doing today? Well, welcome to church. It's great to have you this morning. Good morning, everyone that's joining us online as well. It's good to have you. Uh, I want to begin this morning with a quick word of thanks uh, to all of you, Faith Community Church, regarding FaithWorks. Um, every year, you know, we say, I say at least, I think most of us say, this is our favorite week of the year. And uh, once again, I was not disappointed. So I have a few statistics from the FaithWorks team I want to share with you, okay? I did not make these numbers up. They come from the team, just to clarify. Here it is. 66 jobs were completed with 184 volunteers this week. Now, there you can give a hand for that. Uh, we, have, we need to break the 200 mark next year, okay? Is everybody on board with that? Just get your just third week of June next year. You're not on vacation. There are no grad parties that week. It's time to work, okay? Oldest volunteer was 87. The youngest was five. We served in Hudson, North Hudson, Holton, New Richmond, Ellsworth, St. Paul, Maplewood, Somerset, Hammond, and River Falls. We served singles, widows, the elderly, people facing financial hardship, multiple governmental agencies, and people in distress. We had our friends from Thailand with us this year. We had the McDaniels, our ministry partners from West Asia, joined us this year. Jobs completed included feeding city and county workers to say thank you, rebuilding decks, plumbing, tiling, painting, window replacement, window washing, door hanging, electrical work, lawn care, landscaping, cleaning, garbage hauling, serving meals, kitchen crew, carpet removal, gardening, flooring, metal recycling, staining, renovating, storm cleanup, tree removal, cement work, and, on, and, that, and it says, etc. Okay, so whatever etc. means, we recycled three tons of metal, burned three tons of wood, and hauled away three tons of garbage. We drank between 1,300 and 1,400 bottles of water. And Larry said, there are a lot of really good people here approximately 1,362 times this week. So, <laughs> good week. I just want to say thank you uh, for your prayers this week. Thank you for serving this week. Thank you for giving to Faith Community Church to make all this possible. Uh, you guys really are a blessing to the whole city uh, and to each other. Go ahead, you can give yourselves a hand. We're continuing our series, I Will, this morning. And this morning, the, the, the title is called, I Will Tear. And our scripture reading is going to be in Hosea chapters 5 and 6, if you would turn there with me. That's going to be on page 753, if you are borrowing a Bible today. Okay, 753. And I know I say this a lot, but it's really true today. If you could have a, a copy of the Bible open in front of you or on your phone, it would really help because uh, we are going to move around a little and we're going to do some skimming in Hosea today. And I want you to see I'm not making stuff up, especially today, okay? Now, as you're turning there, uh, I, I've prepared something that I'm just going to read to you, okay? Sometimes I go off script, and now's not the time to go off script. So I'm just going to read, okay? I was halfway through my day on Friday when I became aware that the Supreme Court had overturned the 1973 Roe decision. I'm speaking for the church now. We welcome that ruling. We believe, as all Christians do, that the lives of children are sacred and worthy of our highest protection. 
that the taking of these lives is a profound injustice. And we welcome this ruling. As a congregation, we are ready to receive and to help every mother in distress and every child in need. We have been supporting and serving alongside crisis pregnancy centers for many, many years. We will continue to do so. Many of you have fostered and adopted children. In the coming years, we will need to do so even more. We want to be a place that honors children as a gift from the Lord. Jesus says, whoever receives one child in one such child in my name receives me. As a congregation, we are ready to help and to receive and to minister to post-abortive mothers and fathers with the same grace with which Christ has received us. Some of our leading men and women at Faith Community Church have aborted children and have walked the path of repentance and new life in Christ. We will continue to invite any who would come to the life-giving and life-restoring grace of Jesus. In the months and years to come, the legal battle to defend the lives of children will now move to states. We will continue to work and to pray for justice, not just for children, but for all who are weak, dispossessed, vulnerable, and in need. I'm glad to finally, after many, many months of preparation, get to share with you that we have prepared the house that we own next door to receive refugees and others who are in need. We have a refugee uh, chosen. I believe they're on their way and should be here before the end of the summer. So I never thought that I would see this day come, not in my lifetime anyway. So I am coming into this morning's worship service with uh, a sense of shock and disbelief and grief. Mostly grief. Mostly I'm grieving over the response by our nation to the ruling. And I say that for this reason. It's one thing to know. You know, I've known for a long time. I don't know the exact statistics. But 50% or a little more than 50% of Americans support the right to legalized abortion. I know that many of you here are very distressed by what happened this weekend. If we're doing our job as a church, many of you here will be distressed by what happened this weekend. So it's one thing to know that, but it's another to see the passion and the vehemence in the space of one weekend that was expressed for that. This is not a gray issue. The lives of children are precious in God's sight. And abortion is a profound work of darkness. When I say that, I need you to know wherever you're at with this, that you are sitting next to, next to men and women who are raising children alone. You are surrounded by men and women who have suffered sexual assault. You are surrounded by men and women who have either aborted children, paid for abortions, or been tempted to do so. But the lives of children are precious in God's sight. 
And so for me to see so many people that I love and I still love, people that I respect, friends and neighbors, former students of ours when we were in campus ministry, people we used to worship alongside, people who profess allegiance to Jesus, vehemently denouncing this week's decision has been very hard. The protests on the 11th Street Bridge, we know some of those people. They're our friends. So I found myself up most of the night on Friday night praying for you, Faith Community Church, praying for our kids and asking myself, what am I going to say Sunday morning? We have been appointed, as many other generations have, to live in a time of profound and painful moral confusion. And I, ask, was, I find myself asking, what does compassion and mercy and righteousness, what do they look like in the midst of that kind of moral confusion? And one of the things that occurred to me, so I'm thumbing through the Gospels at two in the morning, Friday night, asking the Lord, speak to me. How do you do this? What did you do? How did you respond? It occurred to me that in, in the ministry that of Jesus in his, during his lifetime here on earth, mostly what Jesus encountered was spiritual darkness and confusion. And so he's often meeting religious people uh, who are really confused about what God wants, etc., etc. When, we, when we're talking about the kinds of moral confusion that we live in today, Jesus has spoken about this in places like Hosea. Hosea is the word of the Lord Jesus. And he's shown us how he'll respond, what he thinks, and hopefully maybe how we should respond as well. So with that in mind, let's look at the prophet Hosea from 750 years before the birth of Christ, 20 years before the destruction of his nation, by Assyria, and this is what the Lord says. We're reading in Hosea chapter 5, starting in verse 14. God says, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off, and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn, and he will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. All right, you can see that we're jumping right into the middle of a thought here. The first word is for, and so we're just going to do a little skimming because the context, I think, will shed a light on a few things. Hosea chapters 1 through 3. Uh, our Hosea's biography and the story of his relationship with his wife. 
But in chapter 4, if you just look at chapter 4 with me really quickly, from chapter 4 all the way through the rest of the book, God lays out his case for separation from Israel. And he summarizes it in the first three verses. So this is Hosea 4, 1 through 3. This is a summary of why God says judgment is coming. He says, Hosea 4, 1, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. And here's his case. This is his lawsuit, essentially. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. That's the word chesed, for those of you who've been around for a few months. There is no faithfulness or chesed and no knowledge of God in the land. They don't even know me anymore, he says. They bow, they bow down to Baal and they thank Baal for the rain and they think it's me. They kiss golden calves. This comes later in the book. They kiss golden calves and they thank the stars of heaven and they think they're worshiping me. They don't even know me anymore. Verse 2, there's swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds. In other words, Israel has come to this place where there's no restraining their evil anymore. In our context, we might say there are, there are no social mores or norms anymore that can contain this insatiable American need for self-expression and self-realization. Everything is to be overcome in the quest to express who we really are. And he goes on to say, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. We, we, we have this idea, in the, you know, in the context that we live, that what we do only impacts ourselves. And what does it matter if we are faithful or faithless as long as no one else is being hurt? And throughout the Bible, the, the, the message is clear. Faithlessness to God, when left to its own devices for long enough, will eventually lead to violence. Bloodshed will follow bloodshed. And he goes on, therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. Even the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heaven, even the fish of the sea are taken away. And all creation is impacted by their faithlessness. And then for two chapters or chapter and a half, God proceeds to address why this has happened. He begins with the priests and prophets. He says in verse 6, if you just, we're just skimming, okay, everybody, just skimming. He says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. This is a great word. Okay, to anyone considering pastoral ministry, to anyone considering an office in the church, to anyone desiring to lead ministry. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And God blames the leaders of his, the religious leaders of his people for this problem. He says, you decided it didn't matter if you knew me. Now my people don't know me anymore either. In verse 12, this is just funny. Verse 12, my people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles. Hey, walking staff, what does the future hold? It's ridiculous. In our context, he would probably say, they get their theology from Instagram and Oprah. Because you, prophets and priests, you're not teaching them. You're not feeding them. And they're chasing after all these false gods. He says, they sacrifice on the top of every mountain. They burn incense on the hills under every oak and poplar and terebinth. And then in chapter 5, he turns his attention to the kings of Israel and all their household. I know I'm going really fast, but he says, you set, the, you set the tone for faithlessness. You were supposed to lead my people in being faithful to me, but you showed them the way out the door. Basically, he makes the case that this is why judgment is coming. And in verse 11, if you look at verse 11, he says, Ephraim is oppressed, 
crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth. Ephraim, by the way, is just another name for Israel, in case we're all clear. And then in verse 12, he says this, but I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. Okay, so moths, you know, they eat up clothing and, and dry rot is dry rot. You put those two uh, images together and there's just a sense that Israel is falling apart. But the surprising thing is that God says he's the one doing it. God is the moth, he says. He is the rot. And that brings with it a note of hope and grace. Because all that needs to happen for healing to come is to acknowledge their guilt and seek his face. That's all it would take. When King David, for example, sinned with Bathsheba and tried to cover it up, he wrote later, it felt like God was crushing all his bones. That's Psalm 51.8. In another place, he says, when I kept silence, my bones wasted away. They rotted away. He says, I was groaning all day long. And then I acknowledged my sin to you. And he says, God healed him. The point is here, if you are here and you feel like you're rotting away, life is just not working, it may be God. Again, David says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. And these things God will not despise. If you would just come into the light, God says, he'll heal you. That's the phrase Jesus used. If you would just come into the light, he would heal you. But that's not what Ephraim is doing. That's not what Israel is doing. Look at verse 13 then. It says, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then they went to Assyria. They sent to the great king. You should just put quotation marks next to great king. Now, if you're a note taker, you should write 2 Kings chapter 16 in the margin next to this. This is a real historical event. When things began to fall apart in Israel, rather than acknowledging their guilt and seeking his face, they went to Assyria to ask them for help. The Assyrians. These are the people that are going to wipe them off the face of the earth in just a few years. And Israel is going to them to ask for help. And we do the same thing. Okay, so you're here this morning. And you have been unfaithful to God. Okay. But then, you, just like David sleeping with Bathsheba, okay, something, okay, so you've slipped into some kind of serious mistake. And then you try to cover it up. Or you try to ignore it. Or you try to rationalize it the way that David did, for example. And, but the rot begins to set in. And you can just feel the hand of God weighing on you. And relationships stop making sense. And there's no joy when you're with God's people. And there's this constant fear of being found out. Rather than acknowledging, God, acknowledging our guilt and seeking his face, we turn to Assyria. We turn to the very things that are going to eat us alive. I've seen this more times than I care to count. The Apostle Paul describes the process in 2 Timothy chapters 3 and 4. You can just write that in the margin of your Bible too. He says, people are burdened by sin. Okay, so maybe this is you this morning. You're burdened by sin. You know that you're living faithlessly, but rather than deal with that, People go out and find teachers to tell them what they want to hear. 
This is the way Paul says it. They turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into made-up stories, myths. So we go on the internet, we find teachers who will talk to us about the love of God as though it's this benign thing. And of course God would never hurt you. God would never, God would never bring judgment. What a barbaric thing to think. How could, how could any God who loves you be a moth or like dry rot to you? That's, that's silly. And they radically reinterpret the teaching of the Bible. They radically reinterpret Jesus until it's almost incomprehensible. That's another one of their fa favorite lines is, well, no one really knows what the Bible says about these things. Friends, we do kind of know. Okay, you can read a book. Books are readable. They're intelligible. The prophet Jeremiah describes the same thing this way. He says, these false prophets, they keep healing the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace. There's no peace. Verse 13 ends this way, but, but Assyria is not able to cure you or heal your wound. And all that would be needed is to acknowledge our guilt and seek his face. Now, if you're here this morning and you're saying to yourself, but, but you, don't, you don't know how many times I've been through this. God is tired of hearing me talk to him about this again and again and again. Yes, I do know. Yes, I do. And if you knew my story, you would know that I know what I am talking about right now. And God says, if you would acknowledge your guilt and seek my face, I would heal your wound. And then finally, our that was the longest introduction in the history of the world. I understand it. Verse 14. Actually, our reading, he says now, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. And then just in case there's any doubt about who is tearing you apart, he says emphatically, I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one will rescue. There's this play on words going on here because in Assyria, the place they're going for help, the propaganda of Assyria, you can go and look at this at the British Museum today if you want, in their writing and in their statues, the king, the great king of Assyria was pictured as a lion the chief hunter in the land. And God is saying, I'm the lion. I am the lion. And I'm the only one that you need be afraid of. And I love you most. And in verse 15, he says, I'll return to my place. Literally, he says, I'll return to my lair and I'll wait. I'm gonna tear you I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to go sit. And I'll wait until you acknowledge your guilt and seek my face. Now, how do we square that with everything we read last week? How do we square that with chapters 2 and 3? Last week, if you were here, in chapters 2 and 3, we read, God says he's going to bring Israel out into the wilderness and allure her and speak tenderly to her and in his kindness lead them to repentance. And here he says, I'm going to tear you apart and I'm going to go home and wait. How do you put those together? It depends on the people. And it depends on the situation. There are some people who need to be wooed. 
and there are some who need to be torn. But the intention is the same. The intention of all these scriptures is the same, to bring you home. And how that happens is up to you. Do you want the lion or the lover? Because God is both. Here in Hosea, we're given an amazing window into the meaning and purpose of some suffering, okay? This is just part of every every Christian needs to have a solid theology of suffering. This is just one part of it, okay? It's not the whole thing. You, You do need to know there is some suffering for which God offers no explanation now. We have that in the story of Job. Kevin was just talking about Job. He never Uh, really understood why what happened to him happened to him. But most suffering does tend to show its purpose over time. And that should keep, but not all, okay? And that should keep us real humble so that the next time your friend is suffering, your knee-jerk reaction should not be to go to them and say, well, how'd you sin? Okay, God is tearing you apart. My pastor, Hosea chapter 5, he said God is tearing you. Is everybody clear? This is a part of why some people suffer. Not all of them. Okay? But here are four reasons that God will tear his people. And he may be tearing you now. Number one, God's discipline is a work of love. God's tearing in your life is actually an indication that you actually belong to him. And that's solid news. Here's the most famous scripture about this. Hebrews 12, 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son and daughter that he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as his child. For what son or daughter is there whom his, who the father doesn't discipline? If you're left without discipline, in other words, if God is not tearing you when you're walking in rebellion, uh, then you are illegitimate children and not his children. For the... For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. In other words, God is saying to Israel, I'm going to be like a lion to you because you're my people. He's not talking this way to Assyria. He's saying, because you belong to me, I am going to come after you if I need to, and I'm going to tear you and wait for you to come to your senses. There is a time for wooing. And there's a time for tearing. And God knows the difference, by the way. All of it is done in love. Second, God's discipline is one of the ways he strips evil from our lives. How many times as a pastor have I heard people say to me, someone said this to me in the last week. Uh, I I needed that tearing experience. I needed it. God was never going to get my attention without the pain. I needed it. Psalm 66, 8 says this, Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He kept our soul among the living. He he has not let our feet slip. For you, God, tested us. You tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water. Yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. Suffering is one of the ways that God strips evil from you. If you are walking in disobedience to the Lord, and you know it this morning, If wooing will not help you, God may tear you to get you home and to bring you into a place of abundance. And the decision is up to you. Third, God disciplines us to teach us, especially about our own hearts. 
it is really hard to know your own heart. Did you know that? Has anyone else ever been surprised by your heart? You've done or said something and you think, geez, I didn't even know that was in me. I didn't even know I was capable of that kind of thing. Well, suffering has a way of, of focusing the mind and exposing what we really love, what we really want. One of the reasons that I've seen people who wander from the Lord stay there is because they're proud. God's discipline is tearing, exposes pride. So I've known Christians who were faithful in God's service. They, they loved God. They loved being with God's people. And then in a moment of weakness, they slip into some kind of sin. And they discover they're not that special. They discover that they're as much in need of grace as the mere mortals they were ministering to. And it's, ex it's extraordinarily hard when you've been the model Christian for years to, to turn around and to acknowledge your guilt and seek his face and to say, apparently, I need the cross of Jesus as much as any. And finally, ultimately, God tears to restore us. Psalm 118, verse 18, he says, I shall not die, but I shall live. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. The prophet Jeremiah, writing about what happened to Israel. So Hosea is telling them what's coming. Jeremiah is looking back on what happened. Jeremiah says, I've heard Ephraim grieving. So they've already been destroyed. He says, I heard him grieving. Quote, God, you have disciplined me and I was disciplined. Bring me back that I might be restored. In other words, the, the tearing that Hosea promised happened and it worked on some. Job 5.17, Behold, blessed is the one whom God disciplines. Do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. Isaiah 42.3 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. If you are bruised this morning, if your wick is about to go out, you do not need to fear that God is going to come along and destroy you. His purpose. God does not tear for the fun of it. His tearing has a goal and it accomplishes that goal that you might be healed. Sometimes in this life, the call and the work and the voice of God are mild and he applies his word to our hearts with a still small voice and I sincerely hope for everyone here and everyone watching online that that would get to be your experience I've shared with you before the quote from J.D. Greer about his children I say to you children we hope you have a nice boring testimony when you grow up we hope that you get to reach 35 and look back on your life and say geez there was just never a time in my life when I didn't know that God loved me, that I, that I knew he was with me, that I was walking with him, that would be awesome. But others, like C.S. Lewis, for example, go through this long period of, of intellectual questioning and wandering. Some of you here are deconstructing. You are just trying to sort things out. Sometimes God meets people in that way, but some, there are some people who have to be torn. Richard Salter describes it this way. He says, I have known some persons 
reclaimed from the unfruitful works of darkness by violent and severe means. The Almighty addressed their stubborn hearts as he addressed the Israelites at Sinai with lightning in his eyes and thunder in his voice. The conscience, smitten with a sense of guilt and the apprehension of eternal vengeance, trembled through all its powers. The pangs of remorse and agony and fear preceded their new birth. They were reduced to their last extremity, almost overwhelmed with despair before they found rest in Jesus Christ. I would hope that none of you come to that. But it is so far preferable to the, op the option. Because the only other option is to turn you over and let you go. John Newton, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, was brought to the living God through a process of terrible tearing. This is, this is from a book by John Curate. He, he writes this. John Newton was a sailor and a proud, violent blasphemer. He was a rebel, an atheist, and a slave trader. His tongue was so full of poison and vile cursing that even tough, hard-bitten sailors were shocked by his ranting. But one evening, the ship on which he was serving was struck by a violent sea and began to sink. The violent man was struck by a violent storm. It was so bad that one of the sailors on board fell over to his death. Newton first responded by trying to be courageous as he and others worked the pumps. He even cavalierly shouted, in a few days, this disaster will serve us to talk over a glass of wine. His companions were not so sure, and they began to prepare themselves for death. After four hours at the pumps, Newton was exhausted and losing heart. Out of the depths of his soul, Newton uttered the words, If this will not do, the Lord have mercy on us. Instantly, Newton was struck by the force of his own word. Unpremeditated, this was the first desire for mercy he had breathed in the space of many years. And at once it occurred to him, what mercy can there be for me? The chief blasphemer, the loudest swearer, the man who mocked the Lord's existence, what mercy is there for me? On the next day, the sea grew even more violent and Newton began to fear for his life. He thought to himself, if the Christian religion is true, I cannot be forgiven. After hour upon hour of the storm, the ship was finally clear and free of water. And Newton believed they'd been saved by the hand of God. And perhaps he could find the way to forgiveness. He, he later wrote this. He said, the more I looked at what Jesus had done on the cross, the more he met my case exactly. I needed someone or something to stand between a righteous God and my sinful self a God who must punish sin and blasphemy, and myself, who had wallowed in both to the neck. I needed an almighty Savior who would step in and take my sin away, and I found such a one in the New Testament. Newton went on, as some of you know, Newton went on to play a pivotal role in the abolition of slavery in the British Empire and to write that hymn, Amazing Grace, because he was torn we have many, many stories like that in this room. Many people sitting around you who would not be here if the mercy of God had not torn them. How should we respond? How should you respond if you're here today and you know that you're walking in unfaithfulness to God? Come. Let us return to the Lord. For he has torn you so that he could heal you.
He has struck you down because he wants to bind you up. After two days, this is verse two, after two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Acknowledge your guilt and return to the Lord. That verse, verse 2, you know, this, this scripture along with scriptures in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, you know, over the years, over the centuries, Israel began to understand from their prophets that even exile, even terrible tearing would not be enough to separate them from the love of God. Eventually, these scriptures, like Hosea, began to create in Israel the understanding that even death would not be able to separate them from the love of God. And so when Jesus comes along, it's scriptures like Hosea 2, or like Hosea 6, 2, that Jesus has in mind when he says, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed into the hand of sinners, I'm going to be crucified, and on the third day, what? I will be raised to life. That comes from here. What Jesus is saying is this this scripture is about Israel. Yes. Ultimately, this is about him. And the reason that he can extend this invitation to you to return is because he was torn to pieces for you. He was struck down. He was broken for our sin. So, If God is tearing you today, if you've been unfaithful to the Lord, return. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal and struck us down that he might bind us up. We're going to go to communion right now. I'll invite the worship team to come up if you want, but we're going to do things a little differently today. We're actually going to share communion now, and then we'll sing together, okay? I'm going to give you a minute right now to pray for yourself, to pray for your neighbors, to pray for your children, to pray for our nation. And then I'm going to lead us through this, okay? Our Father in heaven, as we come to the table today, we give you thanks for your pursuing, persistent, gracious love toward us. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us have each turned to their own way. And you laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Thank you 
for your patience with us. Father, we pray for one another that you would speak words of grace, conviction, and relief into hearts today. We pray for our kids. God, that you would do whatever is necessary to bring them home to you. And Father, this weekend above all else, not above all else, but especially this weekend, we ask that you would do whatever is necessary to bring genuine repentance and healing to our nation. God, would you expose the works of darkness, all of them. And would you bring us to repentance? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, the scriptures say that he took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup and he said, this is the blood of a new covenant. This is my blood of a new covenant shed for you. Drink it as often as you do in remembrance of me. Amen. Let's stand and sing.